you can be seated. Open your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 21. I tell you, I'm going to, I tell you this often, it's fun being the daddy of four daughters and seeing them grow. They're growing so fast. But can I tell you that when you see your oldest girls go into high school, when you help them with their math homework, it's a little different than it used to be. I mean, I was pretty good at flashcards, you know? When you put up four plus three in a flashcard, you might have a hard time believing this, but I know it's seven without even having to check myself. And, and early in your children's understanding of math, that's about the extent of it. But then somewhere along the lines, they cross over out of those simple things and even long division. They move into a new realm of algebra and geometry and trigonometry and eventually calculus. And then it's a whole new ball game, right? That's like going from the minor leagues to the big leagues. I mean, that's the difference in the two. And so we've had that recent venture from the Gwinnett Braves into the Major League Braves down the street in our math assignments. And not long ago, Sadie gave me one of those, and it was the, a really interesting problem that she had to turn in, and it had to do with her algebra homework. And I got a little excited about it. I said, sweetheart, you came to the right source. And I looked at that problem with confidence. And after about 15 minutes of looking at it over and over again, I said, I just don't think I can help you with this. This is an unsolvable problem. <laughs> and, uh, but it wasn't, of course. There's a reason it was there. And actually, I kept thinking about it and kept studying it and thinking about it. And the next morning, I had an epiphany while I was getting ready. I knew how to solve it. And I ran downstairs, and I grabbed a piece of paper. I grabbed a pencil because any good mathematician knows it's the only utensil you can do math with is a pencil. And I showed her. We worked together, and we came up with the answer. Now, I want you to applause to make myself feel better about myself. Can you do that? Thank you. I, I showed that I had the stuff that day. And can I tell you, though, as I think about that, we live in a digital age, and there are some things that you just can't reach for your iPad to do when you have algebra homework. You still need a good old-fashioned passion, piece of paper and a pencil. And I've learned along the way that as you reach for that pencil, it really doesn't matter how much money you spend on that expensive number two. No matter how much you invest in that pencil, it's very likely that if you keep up with it, the pencil will outlast the eraser. Have you ever had that experience? And when you're working on that piece of paper, you can erase and erase and erase, and eventually there is a diminishing effect of the, of the experience of what the eraser does for you because the residual from the lead just does not fully go away. Have you ever had that feeling? Those of you who are perfectionists in the house, and it bothers you that as you erase, you can still see where that pencil lead was. And if you keep working that lead over, eventually your eraser runs out, and instead of trying to erase with the rubber, you hit that awful metal ring as it just scratches your paper to pieces. I tell you that because I really believe that that is a picture of the diminishing and the hard effect of, of the diminishing of purity as we grow older in life and the effect of trying to deal with the problem of the guilt of our own sin. You know, in the world that we live in, we're only given one life. And if you compare your life to that math assignment, you only get one piece of paper. 
You can't change it out and decide, I'm done with this, I'm going to start over again. You have to use the piece of paper you've been given. And early in your life, when you make mistakes in your early childhood, you know what? It's not too bad. You can ask for forgiveness. You wake up the next day, and there's a whole new day awaiting you, and it seems as if that's all you need to not feel guilty anymore. But the longer you live and the deeper your sin becomes, the more you feel the utter weightiness of the sin that you make, and the account seems to be growing. And you wonder, what in the world am I going to do with this mounting, awful feeling of guilt? And I'm so thankful that the Bible doesn't steer away from the hard things. That even when you read through the Old Testament, you find text over and over again in which the author of the Bible books, it deals with our problem of the weightiness of guilt. When you read in the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, a man who must have known how to carry that guilt well with all of his thousand of wives, he's the one toward the end of his life in the book of Ecclesiastes, cries out before God these sighs and moans, vanity of vanities, because he feels the weight of his mistakes. Even in that text that Pastor Jeff read this morning, from Psalm 130, did you hear the hurt and the pain? being voiced by the psalmist when he says in his desperation, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. You know why he feels that way? Same reason you and I do. The eraser doesn't seem to work anymore. No matter how much we use it, the lead on the paper is still there. And as we are sinking, we feel like there is nothing that can rescue us from the suffocation of this feeling of guilt. Well, this morning, I want to show you God's solution when our hearts and our minds are weighed down with this feeling of guilt. I hope that this morning, you'll walk away understanding where this feeling of guilt comes from and why God has made it a part of the human experience to all of us who bear his image. And this knowledge is going to help, for it always helps us, doesn't it? When we understand our feelings, especially in light of our relationship with God, but thankfully, I'm going to show you how God has given us the good and glorious news that he wants us to be rescued from those feelings. So this morning we're going to see in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, that only in Jesus do we find the answer because God uses the gospel to free us from the emotional bondage of our guilt. Read with me in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. And aren't you thankful for it? 
Romans is one of the most important books that you will find in your Bible. And the main thing that Romans teaches, especially in the opening three chapters, is this lesson that every human being needs to learn. Romans tells us the truth about ourselves. And the greatest universal problem for all of humanity, according to the book of Romans, is that all of us are sinners. All of us are guilty of sin. And this truth is something that I'll just be quite frank and honest. The culture does all it can do to discredit. Postmodernity stands against this understanding of absolute truth and wants to trade it in with claims that truth isn't absolute, it's relative. And whatever's true for you is fine, and whatever's true for me is fine too. And as we're trying to reconcile that change in our culture with this discussion of feelings of guilt that we all face, let's just be honest. Those feelings of guilt, don't they make us terribly uncomfortable? In fact, just saying it that way just doesn't even seem to really capture what guilt really does to us. The sleeplessness that it brings, the uneasiness of the heart, the challenge to even have an appetite at times because of the things that we've done, that's what it is. So when we talk about guilt, the feeling of guilt, it is that feeling of deep remorse for the things that we have done. And when we feel this way, says our culture, what we need to do is just simply adjust our thinking about what is causing that guilty feeling so that you no longer have to feel it. And so this is how our culture works. When we have to reckon with the law of God, the postmodern lie of our culture goes even further than what we even read about in the book of Genesis, the lie that the serpent uses with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Because the serpent cunningly, if you remember, asks our first parents, did God really say? But our culture takes things even further. Our culture doesn't begin with a question. Our culture begins with an assertion. And it says, don't burden yourself with what God says or doesn't say. Because in our advancement, we have shown God to be nothing but a myth. And we have debunked that myth a long time ago. So now, you don't have to worry about what God does or doesn't think. Because our culture says he doesn't exist at all. And since God doesn't speak, we don't have to worry about any of his standards for right and wrong. And since there is now no standard in which we are to be judged, the only voice that then guides you is the one that echoes in your own head. But then we come to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And God loves us enough to tell us what is utterly true about ourselves. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is the verdict. We may look at those around us and after comparing ourselves to them, we start to feel pretty good about how we're doing. But here, in comparison to God's glorious character, that which is true of everyone is that all of us have fallen miserably short of God's perfect standard. And the Bible says we're not just a little naughty or we're not just a bit pesky in our behavior. 
Listen to this. We feel guilty because we are guilty. And we might even reach for a fresh eraser, but no amount of rigorous erasing and personal effort can ever change this reality from being true. And this feeling does more than just make us feel just a little uncomfortable. Reality that we're guilty, that feeling hurts. And the pain goes straight to the core of who we are. So when we feel this pain of our guilt, we really have one of two ways that we can respond to that pain. You either shut down to God or you hit your knees before him and accept this truth. And when you shut down to God, you know what really happens most of the time? You don't just make the decision not to listen to God. You push yourself as far away from him as you, as you possibly can get. You treat the Lord like you treat that relative that you see at that family reunion that comes to you and greatly offends you with what they say. And so you make as much effort as you can for the rest of the union to put as much physical space between you and that person so you don't have to deal with them anymore. And you deal with it that way. You might even bring someone into your circle, a trusted friend or maybe a family member, and you start to then explain to them why that family member that hurt you so bad, what it is that they have done, and why it is that they're verdict that you're guilty of these things is so unfair so you begin to go through all the reasons as to why you shouldn't have to listen you ever been there he or she doesn't know all that i've been through or maybe this one is what you use granted i've made some mistakes along the way but let's just be honest who hasn't and i know that I don't hurt people nearly as much as those truly wicked people that I know do that really are the ones responsible for hurting people. And besides, if God is the one responsible for everything in creation anyways, since he's the one responsible for everything, the sinfulness for which he has declared that I am guilty of. Honestly, others are guilty of that sinfulness too, and I have been hurt and victimized by them. Because there's a truth that not only are we sinners, but we're victims of the fact that we have been sinned against by others. Now, if that's where your head is, as you're in that journey of trying to push away the truth claims of what God has determined that we're guilty, can I just say that at least on the point of admitting that we're victims of these things, that on that point you are correct? You have been deeply hurt by the way that sinful people have treated you. And this hurt is legitimate, and this hurt runs deep. And I'm glad that if you have entrusted this struggle to one friend, that you have a trusted friend that you can trust because you see reflected in them the trustworthiness of God and that you know that as you share these deep hurts with them that they'll listen to you. Can I just tell you that I feel it a great privilege when people trust me this way? And when I do and people tell me how they've been victimized and hurt by so much that can happen, that can just right out scar us. 
that my first response needs to be what James, which happens to be the half-brother of Jesus, advised all of us to remember, that we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak so that we can hear and understand how people have been hurt. But when you do come to me, I promise you that I will listen to you. But I love you enough to then tell you and to urge you not to shut down to God. The verdict, it does sting. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I may not know the depth of your hurt, but I can relate in that the verdict of sinfulness is something that I have to feel and face in my life too. Because the Bible says we both are sinners. And through our actions, we have not acted as a friend to God, but we have acted against God as his enemy. And while we were still sinners, an enemy of God, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Christ died for us. And this is the reason we both hit our knees before the Lord instead of pushing him away, and we accept this verdict. There is a single, solitary, two-stranded rope that God has given us that rescues us from the despair of our guilt. And this first strand is this verdict that I've already mentioned. We have failed to meet God's standard, and we have to accept that to be true. But the second strand is that God has gifted us through Jesus with a provision that resolves our guilt. The Romans chapter 3 continues in verses 24 and 25. And when Paul writes, we are justified by his grace as a gift, God's word is saying that the divine judge, if you know Christ and have trusted Christ, has declared over you that you are not guilty. And through the work of God, he makes us righteous. Paul calls this a gift. And he says that this happens by God's grace because there is nothing that we have done or nothing we could ever hope to do to one day be awarded this kind of approval. So when you're hearing me talk about being absolved and resolved of your guilt, please know that there is nothing in this message that says God helps those who helps themselves. To believe that way is to reject Jesus and reject the gospel entirely. This message is different. And this message is wonderful. And this message only gets better because not only are you justified, so the divine judge has ruled that you are not guilty. Verse 24 says that all of this happens through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that word redemption is marketplace language. But please understand this marketplace. You and I are not the free men and the free women who are placing bids on the merchandise that's being presented to us by the auctioneer. We in this story are the merchandise. We have been enslaved by our sin to live a life separated from the God who created us. And our precious Jesus, through what he has done in giving his life for us on the cross, has bought us and has purchased us because of his perfect and amazing love. Wow. And then God continues to give us this unimaginably good news. He has put forward his son. 
as the propitiation of his blood. And propitiation means that all of God's rightful anger against us, because we are sinners, was turned away from us and was placed in full measure upon Christ. All of it. So when Jesus died in our place, he suffered wave upon wave of God's rightful wrath. And the punishment that Jesus endured made it so that God's perfect justice was served. So our sin doesn't just go away. It's dealt with in full by the Father as he pours that punishment into his Son on Calvary's cross. So now do you see why these verses are so important? If Romans is the most important book in the Bible to tell us the truth about ourselves, these verses are the most important because they tell us the gospel so that we can know Christ and be freed from our guilt. And when you trust in Christ as your Lord, the Bible says you are justified. God looks upon you as if you've never sinned. You are redeemed. The ultimate cost of your soul has been purchased by Christ's blood. And though you at one time rejected God, you and I were an enemy of him. In Christ, through Jesus' act of propitiation, you have no reason to fret as to whether or not you will spend forever with him because you have been accepted. God has accepted you. And as he shows all of creation his perfect righteousness, says verse 25, you are a reflection to the world of God's glory. So in the verdict of 323, we know that we feel guilty because we are guilty. But in the provision of verses 24 and 25, we know that our guilt has been forgiven. So now, now that you know that in Jesus, the words that Pastor Jeff read to us are utterly and completely and wonderfully true, you have been redeemed from the pit of your own guilt and your own sin. All of this has happened because of God's steadfast love for you. The psalmist says that he, in his grace and in his love and in his provision, has removed your sin in Christ and has cast it as far as the east is from the west. So you can rest in the peace. For everyone who knows Jesus, this peace comes to you the moment you become a Christian. But let's continue. Because there's the Paul Harvey rest of the story, isn't there? Since we are still struggling with sin until we're glorified with Jesus forever in heaven, we still need to preach this message of the gospel to ourselves every day so that we can walk in this peace every day. The New Testament tells us in several places over and over that the daily struggle for a true Christian is to think and live and act like we are forgiven. Because for whatever the reason, the world that we're in is like a tractor beam in Star Trek. And we fight it, we feel it, and it's always there. And that tractor beam is trying to 
condemn us and leave us in a position that we live and think and act according to our past, before we trusted Christ. When we were condemned, as the Bible says, and still guilty for our sins. And the voice of God has declared, though, that that voice is wrong. Right now, church, if you know Christ, you are justified. Right now, you are redeemed. You live each day accepted by God. And that is the voice that you need to listen to. You are not condemned any longer. God will accept you. He has accepted you. And that's always going to be true. But for whatever reason, we still feel this struggle, don't we? I have a very dear friend that explained it as brilliantly as I have ever heard it expressed. This is the challenge for every Christian. It is as if our address has been changed and we have truly moved, but it feels like we're still living in the same house. And so many of us live this way every day. We are Christians. We do good things that we know God wants us to do. But even when we do those good things, we do them motivated by our past and not by our present and our future. I want to ask you a question. What is the motive for the things that you do? When you are living in the joy of Christ, you do everything out of gratitude for all that Jesus has done in the provision. That is where you find peace. And when you are living according to this truth, peace, it's way different. But I encounter people all the time. I struggle with it too. We're living not according to this peace, but we're living as if we are still in that old house. And we do good things, but we don't do them out of gratitude for God, but out of guilt. What is God going to think if we don't? What will others think if we don't? And that defines our days. And that is that all, all too familiar voice that's ringing in our head yet again. And if you're honest, this is why church feels tired. Because you're exhausted. This is why it's hard to find yourself to be motivated to read your Bible. Doing it because you feel guilty if you don't. And guilt, from the time it was given to us, was meant to always point us to Jesus, but guilt never changes anybody. And that's how we live. Listen to the old voice of what happened before. The best way for me to explain this to you is by admitting to you publicly one of my biggest pet peeves. Now, I live in Smyrna, Georgia. And this is not just the heart of the Jonquil City. We live in the heart of thank you note writing. And when someone does something kind for you and does something that comes out of the overflow of their heart and their love for you, 
Can I just tell you, I'm thankful that it is with great joy that I get to then write a thank you note. And I know that in a group this size, you're probably thinking, well, there's something I've done for you that you never thanked me for. I know that just happens. But boy, when you are motivated out of the rightful ways to thank someone for what they've done, isn't it wonderful? Don't you love just sitting down and telling someone what they mean to you? But you know what I hate? Is when someone says, Pastor, you ought to write a thank you note for that. Don't you hate that? (sighs) Because then it just takes all the joy out of it, doesn't it? Because you're not thanking them because you feel thankful for what they've done. You're thanking them out of this sense of obligation. And you know what's true? When dutiful obligation replaces grateful expression, it takes the fun right out of life. It does on our marriages when we're obligated to recognize an anniversary. Don't you know your spouse knows the difference? Everything in our life is affected when we live out of a sense of guilt instead of out of a sense of gratitude. So I ask you the question again, why do you do the things that you do? Do you act out of guilt or do you act out of gratitude? There is nothing you can do, church, to ever make God love you any more than he does right now. You can't earn it. It's the joy of the gospel. And when you understand that, all you can do is be grateful to Jesus. And that motivates everything in your life. But here's the other truth. For those of us still struggling with sin on this side of eternity, there's nothing you have done or you will do that will ever make God love you any less than he does right now. And that truth is so profound. It is God's grace through and through. And all you can do is respond to the Lord in utter and complete gratefulness for what he's done. And when you live your life according to gratitude and not guilt, this is the place that you find peace. So on Wednesday of this past week, at 82 years old, Bernie Madoff, the architect of the most destructive Ponzi scheme in American history, he died in federal custody only one decade into his 150-year sentence. For years, Madoff intentionally lured his clients to invest in a business charade that had no earnings, and had no value. And when the judge over his case delivered to Madoff the maximum sentence, he commented to Madoff that he was a man, and these were his words, who was extraordinarily evil. He was described and has been all week long as being a man who is a brilliant con artist. I mean, this is the only way that you can go to people who are the world's brightest and most intelligent, and convince them in this charade to trust you with their fortune. It's the only way that a man of his stature could throw off the investigations, five of them, in fact, of the U.S. Government's Security and Exchange Commission, all the while pleading that he was innocent and he was doing things the rightful way, and everyone around him believed him. But when the recession of 2008 finally hit, 
it was quickly discovered that Madoff and his multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme was nothing but a fraud. And the judge was right in saying that Madoff was a man filled with extraordinary evil. But can I tell you before we leave this topic of guilt this morning? I think there's an evil out there that's even greater than this. Because no matter the claims of your belief system or of some other religion, God has spoken and he is abundantly clear outside of Christ. There is no way for your sin to be forgiven and for your guilty feelings to be resolved and for your guilty actions to be taken care of, except for in the finished work of what Jesus has done. So other beliefs, other religions, they may promise relief. But every single person will have a day of reckoning. We'll all stand before the presence of God. And every other plan for resolving our guilt will prove to be a Ponzi scheme. The only place where guilt can be forgiven is by believing in the gospel. So quit trying to erase your guilt and trust in him. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. There's someone who, for the first time today, has heard of the gospel and understood the completeness of what Jesus has done. Christ came. He lived a perfect life to be our substitute on the cross so that all of your sin could be placed on him and you could stand before God forgiven. If this morning you will confess that he's your Lord. And turn from all of your sin and yourself and trust in Jesus. And believe that God raised him from the dead. The Bible says you can be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus, won't today be the day that you transfer all of your hope and trust in Jesus? The verdict has been given. The provision has been made. Peace is there for you you will trust in Christ but for all the rest of us listen that tractor beam is strong and we can live out our days in guilt and never enjoy the gratitude and the fullness of living in the joy of the gospel and if you had your heart pricked by those things decide right now you will preach this wonderful truth of the gospel to yourself every day you'll live in the gratitude that Christ has given and that everything from this point forward, you'll make a commitment to be different. And just trust in the finished work of Jesus. Just cling to it. Depend upon it. It's not about helping yourself or trying harder. It's about trusting him in an even deepening way. Won't you do that? Father, I thank you so much for these truths. Oh God, thank you for forgiving us of our sin. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.